my mama was born, it's where I come from, it's where my daddy fell in love not long ago. Hello, hi everyone. This is Larry Camp, and welcome to the Nobody Knows Your Story podcast, which just happens to come with a side of Hawaiiana. Nobody Knows Your Story is a podcast which I believe will impact each listener in a positive way. As you listen to the experiences that have transformed, shaped, and guided each guest, perhaps you'll better understand your own personal journey. Some will surprise, some will make you question, and some will inspire, but all will leave you in a better place for listening in. As for the Hawaiiana, well, that's just a big part of my life story. So I invite you to check in each week and listen to the life experiences of people just like you. Larry Camp here with a little precursor to today's interview with Bob Hollowell. Now, you just heard a little bit of Jimmy Buffett singing, well, what was he singing? I believe that was Ho 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 and a Bottle of Rum. Indeed it was. So we're going to have a two-part episode. As I interviewed Bob, 
I mean, he's got an unusual story. And what I mean by that is most of us, you know, we get jobs and we work. Some of us stay with the same company for 30, 40 years. Others, you know, maybe change jobs every seven, eight years. I don't know. But Bob has done about five different things from being a franchisee or owner of, of like 20 hair salons to being a commercial pilot and several things in between. Not only that, he and his wife, Carol, they took a tandem bike cross country. And he talks about that a little bit. And then we just kind of talk about life. And by the time you do that, throw in some Jimmy Buffett music, a little bit of Hawaiian music. Well, you can see it makes sense to make this into a two episode interview. So episode two is going to be released on Friday, December 4th. So, hey, hope you enjoyed this interview today, but then tune in. Again, that's a radio term, but I like it. So tune in or listen in on December 4th for part two. Aloha. episode of Nobody Knows Your Story. I should say and explain that if you're keeping track of the episodes, because Apple counts my very first episode as an episode, even though it was only two and a half minutes talking about what my podcast was going to be about, I'm now going to just get back on track and we are officially here with the 30th episode. And my guest tonight is Bob Hollowell. Now, if you remember six months or so ago, we interviewed Carol Hollowell, who is Bob's wife. So I've been wanting to have Bob on, but you know I didn't want to do the Hollowell stories back to back. I had to put a little space in there. So, Bob, welcome. Well, thank you, Larry. Yeah, good to be here tonight. Thanks for the nachos. Yeah, and you know I'm going to put my headphones on because I was thinking, what sounds different? Well, it sounds different because I don't have my headphones on. So there we go. Got to have it sound right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So. I, I wanted to mention that we just listened. This is through the sound of editing or the, the ability to edit here, Bob. Sure. But um, we just listened to Cool Down by Kaloi Kai. And this particular song is kind of like a Jamaican or a reggae song, or in Hawaii, they call it Jawaiian. So that is what we just listened to. 
we're going to probably in the middle of this put in a Jimmy Buffett song because Bob and Carol really like Jimmy Buffett. Parrot heads we are. <laughs> and it is, kind it. Of, it is kind of a holiday time, so maybe we'll get a couple of, uh, find a couple of Jimmy Buffett uh, holiday songs. Yeah, he's got a few or three or four. Exactly. Mm-hmm. All right, so Bob, you know the, the format. Like you say, we just uh, sat here and had some nachos before we started this and talked a little bit. You have an interesting story, Bob. I mean, as we sat there and talked about some of the things that you've done in your life, I think that your story is going to be like many, and that is from the standpoint of you might not think is interesting, but no doubt in my mind, others will. Well, I hope so. You never you never think of your own lives being that interesting because it's uh, sometimes the same, sometimes different, but I guess you look back after 60 years, probably done a few uh, unique things that maybe some people haven't and might find interesting or fun. Yeah, I'd love to see how it goes, see what people think. All right. Well, hey, tell us uh, tell us where you started out. I know that we've already discussed a little bit. I know you started or were born in Idaho, so kind of take it from there. Right. I was born in Salmon, Idaho, um, just a little small town along the Salmon River. My father was uh, worked for the BLM, graduated in forestry, and so he was transferred there. And my brother and I were born about a year apart. And then as uh, I guess is typical with uh, that type of a government job, he was transferred to Ely, Nevada. We lived a couple of years. And so I don't remember any of my life in Ely or, of course, Salmon. But then um, I think I, well, I went to kindergarten. We moved to Richfield, Utah. And we were there for a couple of years again. And then my father got transferred to uh, Medford, Oregon. And that was, uh, I think I went to first grade in, in Medford, Oregon. Remember Lincoln School. I always felt like that was such a big move moving from Utah to Oregon that, boy, these people in Oregon are different. And not because they were different. I felt like I was different. thought I was, yeah, just not, not really fitting in. But it, it worked out pretty good. It was, it, we had, I spent the rest of growing up years in Medford. And uh, we moved from Medford to a little town just outside called Central Point, if anyone knows Southern Oregon, and went to the rest of my school years, I think from third all the way graduating in Central Point. Um, and how big would your high school been? How many students? We had 600. No, we had 1,200 students. 1,200 okay. students. So it was, de- it was decent, mm-hmm. but we were the doormat in sports <laughs> in pretty much every sport. We just, uh, there were some bigger schools and we just never really, really competed very well. I, I liked, I love sports. I was, you know, played uh, basketball and football and baseball through all the years until high school. And then it just seemed like I, w- I just wasn't getting big enough and strong enough for football anymore and just left it to basketball and then baseball. Baseball kind of, I was pretty good at that. And then my, I didn't realize my eyes were not as good as they used to be. And, and uh, the playing outfield, the ball would go sailing right over me. And I wouldn't see it till it got out of the infield. And never realized that, that actually it was my eyes that were bad. You know, anyway, I, I love sports. It was great. It was great growing up. I, I never ended up competing in the, um, in my junior and senior year. I decided I needed to work. In our household, we had six kids, and my father decided that uh, the BLM wasn't for him. He did not like working for the government. In fact, he was very anti-government, and so he quit his uh, job with the BLM and, and started a little 
a little nonprofit, I guess, if you will. But basically, at the time, the right to own own and bear arms or uh, or guns was being threatened. I guess he felt, and that he needed to create a organization that was going to fight to preserve the Second Amendment. And so he created this organization, and they put together a little newsletter, and he went around the country and spoke. And but the result of that was it never really made much money. And so my mother w- went to nursing school and became a nurse. And between her income and the f- and living on a farm where we raised all of our own animals, in fact, uh, and grew our own most of our own food, we had a big big garden. That was that was our life, but we never really felt like we were that uh, very well off because they, I knew things were really tight for my parents. If we wanted anything, whether it was a pair of shoes or, of course, a bicycle or anything, we had to go. We had to figure out how to earn it, and so there was there was always lots of jobs or jobs were available. Living in a little farm community, there was always bucking hay or mowing lawns or cutting firewood or pulling someone's weeds or uh even at that time you could go along the the roads and pick up uh beer and beer and pop cans because in Oregon there was a there was a deposit associated with that. So we'd get a gunny sack, my brothers <clears throat> brother and I we'd jump on our bicycles and we'd we'd uh <laughs> scour the roadsides and pick up beer cans and or the beer bottles. They weren't cans at the time and, and but pop bottles take them to the little store down the road and cash them in. And, and, uh, that was where we made, you know, a lot of our money until we, you know, was able to get jobs and that kind of stuff. I was going to say, uh, I remember people keeping those pop bottles in their carports and sometimes we made a little, little trip over to their carports and (laughs) (laughs) turned in their bottles. (laughs) Yeah. It, uh, I remember, I remember people having just bags of pop cans in their garages because they, uh, pop became kind of a thing and people, yeah, they everyone was worth a nickel, so it all added up. Let me ask you about the six kids. Where did you fall in line? I was third. Okay. I had an older brother and older sister. Yeah. And you guys were brought up in a religious household? Yes. In college, my parents, uh, they joined the LDS church. When you were in college or they were no, in college? No, when they were in college. Got it. Okay. Yeah, they were in college. And I think, uh, I think my father saw the... He saw the conservative nature of the Mormon church and a lot of the views. He kind of coincided with his views. He liked that. I don't know if he ever belonged to the John Birch Society, but kind of along those lines of the John Birch. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and there were some leaders that he really liked. And so, yeah, a good friend of his in college was, was Mormon. And so he, uh, yeah, they converted when pretty much, I think, when we were real small kids, I think, but uh, I think there's a few kids at that point. So you grew up then doing all the the primary, and uh, you got yeah. into the um, erotic priesthood and all those different things that yeah. I'm, I'm aware of because yeah. I did them too. All the all, all the little benchmark things, yeah. and okay. we, and, you know, we loved it. You know, you go to you, mutual on Tuesday, and there's always a fun activity and always some great uh, leaders. And we did, yeah, we did a lot of fun stuff. Yeah, he is, and there's always seemed to be always activities and dances growing up in high school, and you know, girls that kind of you know had the same values or morals and that kind of stuff. So it was it was safe, and you were kind of taught to be a little bit scared of those that weren't of your faith, and so <laughs> so you end up 
trying, you know, you end up hanging around those that have the same, same values. So your school had about 1200 kids in high school, right? How many then would share, share your religious views? Oh, in probably all my high school, there was probably 10 of us. Okay. So not, not very many, but a pretty tight group of 10 then pretty tight group of 10. And they were, what I think was pretty unique is they we f- we seem to all fit in pretty well. There was always there was always a few of them that were really good athletes, and so that always helps you move up the uh, <laughs> move move up the food chain of high school. And you know the rest of us kind of hung on the short, short you know their coattails and and um, so we were we were well accepted. You know we didn't go to the parties on Friday night, and they knew we didn't drink. And then of course smoking was kind of looked frowned upon anyway. And at that point in time. And probably the oddest thing was, which was kind of hard was, you know, we, we didn't drink any caffeinated, you know, no Coke or Dr. Pepper or anything like that. So, you know, so that was kind of the only odd thing that was always kind of like, how come, you know, kind of troubling for me, but, um, <laughs> you were you a little stricter than my upbringing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, besides school activities, there's always plenty of church activities and you'd end up kind of leaning towards those because you is just, you knew the people better and, you know, it was a little more comfortable and, and, uh, you know, give the church credit. They did a really good job of putting even athletics, good softball program, a good basketball program that was enticing enough that I played, played those sports as opposed to high school, okay. you know, and I, I regret it now, but, um, it was, at the time, you know, it was, it, it just seemed like that was, that was where I wanted to be. So did you have any interest in music or anything like that in high school or as you were growing up or anything yeah. else, I guess, outside of just, you know, my, what we might think of as school activities. When band came around, I says, Hey mom, I want to play in band. She says, well, we have a clarinet in the family. So, you know, we don't really want to rent or buy you any, anything. Could you play the clarinet? I said, well, okay. You know, and I, and I did, and I, and I took to it at first. I really enjoyed it. But then as, then I just kind of lost interest in it, junior high. And, and then I quit playing. Yeah. But uh, I, you were just done. I was done. <laughs> I just wanted to play, go to school and play sports. And yeah, I think that that was, that was it. Let me go back just a little bit. Something that probably a little unique about, like say we had a family farm which means we had pigs and chickens mm-hmm. and horses, cows, and a few milk cows. And so a real farm. A real farm where we we drank you know, milk from our own cows. Dad let me be, he says, well, if you want to milk the cows, you can have the money that you sell the extra milk to. Because we we'd produce, I don't know, a couple, three gallons extra a day that we couldn't consume in the family. And so I'd sell it to the neighbors. And so, you know, a dollar a gallon. And of course, I'd buy my own feed. And so there's some expenses there. But it was kind of a skill that not too many people have ever sat down and milked a cow. <laughs> right. and, and to this day, you know, I think I have fond memories of doing it. But at the same time, I hated it a lot of times as a kid because it infringed upon your sleeping in the morning and it infringed upon your you had to be home by six or seven o'clock at night because you had to milk cows in the middle of winter in Medford, Oregon, when it rains a lot, 
of course you're in the barn, but the cow comes in just muddier than heck and, you know, doesn't really want to be milked and you're fighting the cow and kicking the, sometimes kicking them can't, you know, the can of milk over, then your dad's not too happy. And it, it, you know, it wasn't all that um, fun all the time. I mean, it was work. It was just, it was flat out. It's just work. <laughs> but that was, that, you know, that was kind of unique. It provided a little extra money for me. I used to tell my dad, I said, you got those cows just so you make sure us boys got it home in time. Or we, you didn't spend, you didn't stay out all night long because on a date, because you knew at six in the morning you had to get up and milk cows. Well, also, it was instilling a work ethic in you too. Yeah. And, yeah. and I know enough about you to know that whatever it is, you might be doing different things, but you're not going to go without work. Right. Yeah. And I, right. Dad was, my dad was a really a hard worker and, um, we didn't have any mechanical equipment. So come springtime, we would shovel the whole, the whole, uh, barnyard into a wheelbarrow and wheelbarrow it through the mud to the garden spot. And that took, you know, that took, um, a couple weeks of an hour a morning after, you know, before school or after, after school or something like that to get the whole barnyard shoveled out. So, you know, and then the gardening, it just was, yeah, grass to mow and weeds to pull and irrigation and fences to, to fix and <laughs> cow, you know, animals to feed. So there's always, there was always something, but, um, yeah, so we, we, we enjoyed work. We liked the, we liked the, uh, the proceeds from it. We liked, taking that money and be able to spend it the way we wanted to. So, but yeah, so after, after college or excuse me, after high school, uh, I decided to go to Rick's college, which is now BYU, Idaho in Rexburg, Idaho, went there for a semester. After that semester, I was, my birthday's in January. So I went home and didn't uh, go back in the spring cause I wanted to prepare to go on a mission. One of the benchmarks in Mormonism or LDS dumb or whatever you want to call it is at 19 you go on a you go on a mission and you don't know where you're going to go and it's kind of exciting and it's uh at that time you save money to at least pay for most or if not all of your mission depending on what your because your family was responsible for it you know it was like a couple hundred dollars a month is what they you expected to you know times what 24 months so six or seven thousand bucks probably is what it cost to go on a mission so you'd, you'd have to, you know, so I went home, got a job and, um, and, and worked until I, until I went on my mission. It was easy to get a job because what had happened in high school is I, I got to where I was doing work, what they call work release. I had a work release job. So after lunch, I, I went to my, I went to a job work from one to five. And I'd gotten a job at a at a uh, funeral home. The uh, church basketball coach knew the owner of the funeral home, and so he got me this got me this job because I was working at a grocery store before that, just bagging groceries. And he uh, got me a job at the funeral home, and that was really a fun job and very interesting because you know I was working with you know deceased people, and I didn't. At first, I was kind of scared of them, <laughs> and 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 uh, I just haul flowers and clean the chapel and clean the cars and that kind of stuff. Um, and then I was taking the cremations to go get cremated because it was done at a different site, and and then I'd 
sometimes go and they'd have me travel to pick up someone that deceased in another city somewhere in Oregon or California. And so that was kind of cool. You could go on overnight trips and stuff like that. I did that and eventually actually started doing an apprenticeship to be a, thought I wanted to be a funeral director. But in the meantime, I, you know, I was 19, I need to go on my mission. And so I turned in my papers and got a call to go to serve in, uh, in, in Indianapolis, Indiana mission for two years. But what I loved about Indiana was they played basketball. They really loved their game of basketball. Oh yeah, and uh, you know as we know they've produced they've produced some really uh, exceptional stars over the years. And that was about the time Larry Bird was going through college, and Isaiah Thomas was also going through college at Indiana when Larry Bird at Indiana State, and I think uh, Isaiah Thomas at University of Indiana. Was there really a hickory? Was there a what? Well, I think, isn't that where Hoosiers, the movie, uh, oh. they're from Hickory, I think it was. Yeah, I don't remember what the town was from, but I've only seen the movie a couple times. Or Larry, now Larry Bird was from French Lick. Yeah, yeah, he's from French Lick. Did you ever go there? Never went there. <laughs> uh, Terre Haute, which is where I guess that the university is. One time we, we snuck into the Coliseum at, at uh, University of Indiana because Isaiah Thomas was playing and... I uh, shoot, I can't remember the name of the coach then. The coach of uh, Bobby Knight. Bobby Knight, yeah. Yep. He was he was he was famous even then. But uh and they were I think they were contenders for, you know, being a top ten top ten uh team and I think and maybe even won a national championship around that time. But we snuck into the uh Coliseum and and, and it was just kind of fascinating to watch how they practice. And pretty soon, of course, you're zeroing in on Isaiah Thomas because he's the he's the star player. And we watched probably like half hour, forty five minutes, and all he did it was I mean every player was doing their own thing. He worked on the same move time and time again. He'd get the ball, he had this move he was working on, and he did it for till we got bored. <laughs> and but it taught me something. It's like, well, that's how you get good at something. You do it over and over and over again until you got it right. You know, even though it bored the heck out of me, it was uh, it was a lesson learned, I guess. But yeah, it's that muscle memory thing. I mean, I was I've read somewhere that to really you know learn a skill or, or be skillful at something, you have to do it like ten thousand times, probably. And what happens at yeah. about uh, fifteen hundred times, you're like, oh, I'm done with this. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> at least that was me. This is, <laughs> this is too much work. Yep. <laughs> My left hand is just not going to do what it's yeah what I wanted to do. Well, so you so you did your mission to Indiana. Yeah. And you you know you came back. You'd, you'd done a little time at Rick's. You said. Yeah. Did you go back to Rick's? No, I I thought well I'm going to pursue this funeral directing thing. And so that's what I did. I did it. I did it for a year, and then the time come to go to college, and I became I became disenchanted with the occupation, mostly because the other funeral directors I worked with, because as the apprentice you were always on call, and so you're going to pick up the body from the home or the hospital or nursing place or whatever accident scene, and take it back to the funeral home, and you prep the body, basically embalm it. And wash it down. And then this could be in the middle, you know, most time it happens during the night. And so for a whole year, uh, I think I had one day off a week. You're up most of the night because we were a very busy funeral home. And then you had to work all day. But 
it wasn't so much that it was the guys that had been in the business for 20, 30 years at that point, they hated their career with a passion. Mm -hmm. They just felt stuck. They felt like this is a dead end job. You know, this is just not fulfilling anymore. Why do I want to go down this road? I started looking for something else to do because like, I'm not going to spend the money and go to college for a uh, career that's not going to be, you know, that I really don't like. And there really wasn't any money in it being an employee. The money was in being an owner, obviously, as with most things. I had a girlfriend when I left on my mission that uh, that was going to wait for me, but <laughs> she, she lasted about a year. Two years is a long time, dude. Oh, yeah, yeah. She lasted about a year, and I got the dear John. But her parents kept in touch with me. They'd had a ranch in, in Ashland, Oregon. There was a, um, a fellow that was offering these really crazy returns for in, for investment in, in Cayman Islands, where evidently where this guy was investing his money. And you probably know where this is going. <laughs> if you ever... And anyways, Cayman Islands was kind of a thing. Offshore banking was the, was the term. And they had invested, they'd hawked their ranch to be able to make this big return. Long story short, they lost they lost everything. They lost their ranch. And pretty soon they trying to figure out how to make a living. They had a friend in Southern California that was starting some one-hour photo stores. And he was pretty well, well healed and was going to take these stores at least throughout the South, Southwest. And uh, one-hour photo was, was kind of a hot thing. So... I get a phone call from him says, Hey, Bob, what are you doing? And I said, well, kind of not nothing right now. I mean, I'm working, but I'm not, I'm don't I'm kind of in between. I probably should go back to school. I'd been accepted to BYU, but college was never really my thing. So I was looking for every reason not to I says, what do you got? And he says, well, we're going to start, we're starting or working with a guy who's building these one hour photo mats. And there was one that had, had opened in my hometown of Medford. that was just, crazy busy like wow this is the new technology and it was just you know get your get your photos back in one hour where you used to be five to seven days to get them back and i says well yeah tell me more about it. next thing i know i'm driving down there to to learn this one hour photo business and i started managing a store and we built it out to like five or six stores in southern california and next thing i know they're they're actually leaving the business because it's not working out for them financially. Their needs were greater than mine. <laughs> and so I was asked to manage these five stores in Southern California. Unfortunately, they were never making any money. I did that for like two years before the owner started saying, okay, this is, there was a lot of people that got in the same industry. And so the competition was just slicing the pie up too many thin pieces. So I was going, okay, this is coming to an end. <laughs> what am I going to do now? So I'm in, here in Southern California, which is not where I want to, not where I want to stay. Let's get away from sleigh bells. Let's get away from snow. Let's make or break some Christmas, dear. I know the place to go How'd you like to spend Christmas On Christmas Island How'd you like to spend the holiday Away across the sea How'd you like to spend Christmas 
Christmas on Christmas Island. How'd you like to hang a stocking on a great big coconut tree? How'd you like to stay up late like the islanders do? Wait for Santa to sail in with your presents. In a canoe If you ever spend Christmas On Christmas Island You will never stray for every day Your Christmas dreams come true One day I was uh, getting my hair cut at a place called Supercuts. And I was just I was sitting there waiting for my turn to get my hair cut. You basically put your name in line and you sit and I wait like 30, 40 minutes. In the meantime, I was counting the heads that were coming in, coming out, going, this is a heck, this is an incredible business model because you only need enough hairdressers for as many customers as you have coming in the door. You know, if you're only doing, if you're doing 50 haircuts a day, you only need enough hairdressers to do 50 haircuts a day. Whatever that number is, I had no idea. Like, this is a great business. I mean, you're working with all these young women and, and people's hair doesn't stop growing. They're always going to have, everyone's you're always going to have to have a haircut. Why isn't that a good business? And Supercuts was a franchise. So I sent off for their franchise information, see what it would cost to be a franchisee of one of their stores. I don't remember what the number was, but I was <laughs> I did not have that kind of money or net worth to be to be opening one of their or be buying one of their franchises. But I was still was determined as like, okay, this can't be that this can't be that hard. <laughs> um kind of got this dead end job. Actually it was still in the in the one hour photo business, but it was a, a supply house. And so I'd work you know, half a day filling orders for this supply house for the one hour photo industry. And then the rest of the day, I, I'd researched these, what they call budget cut salons. Cause there was, you know, there was different brands of them in Southern California. There was quite, it was quite the popular way as opposed to going to a barber or opposed to getting an appointment to get your haircut, which I always hated. 
And as opposed to going into a bar or a beauty salon and smelling all those crazy smells and which I hated too. This is just simple. Get your hair cut. You're in, you're out, not by a barber per se, but a hair, hair stylist, which is predominantly female, which is sounds better at that point in your life. I did that for about six months. Then I decided, okay, I'm ready to make the move. I'm going to move back to Oregon. I'm going to find a location. I'm going to build one of these stores. I'm going to sell everything I have, which wasn't much. <laughs> Talk to, and talking to my, I had a sister who lived in Corvallis, Oregon, which is where Oregon State University is. And I said, hey, hey, Donna, um, you know, I'm thinking of, I'm studying this, this business idea. And is there, I need a, I need a space. I need some retail space. Told her kind of what I was looking for. And she called back a few days later and says, Hey, there's a, there's a, a vacant space. It's right across the street from a Fred Meyer, which was basically in Oregon. It's like a Walmart. I took a drive up there and looked down like, wow, this is, this is, this could be a good spot. So I initiated a conversation with the owner to get a lease. And, um, next thing you know, I'm, kind of committed to this hair salon idea <laughs> in Corvallis, Oregon. So I'm living with my sister. She let me, her and her husband and, and their family, let me move in with them and started uh, putting the pieces together to uh, put this hair salon together. Well, the first one, first obviously was how am I going to build it cheap? Cause I only had money wise. I think I, I only had like six or 7,000 bucks cash to do this pull this off and i'd built one summer i'd built pools swimming pools with a guy who was basically a contractor call him up and i says hey i need to ask you a favor basically but i paid him but would you be willing to come to corvallis and help me build this store out basically frame it out and he said yeah sure so anyway he did <laughs> and him and i we built the store out it, um, and the next thing was finding hairstylists, which wasn't really a problem. And lo and behold, I found a gal that was in the industry and she'd worked in Portland. Her family was in Corvallis. Anyway, I, she was, she knew everything there was to know about that aspect. Cause I wasn't a hairdresser. I didn't know the first thing about cutting hair. Yeah. She hired the hairdressers and trained them and, and kind of set up my systems for me. Anyway, the first day we opened, we made money. It was just kind of like the perfect thing for, for that town. Well, and the other part of it too, is that you weren't married. So you could do some of these right. crazy things that right. once you get married, especially once you have kids, it's right. kind of hard to really, you know, try and do something like that. So timing right. is right. Good location across from that Fred Meyer. You're in a college town. Right. So yeah, I think, you know, it's all lined up for you, and the experience that you gained, like you say, in Southern California. Yeah, and that was that was actually yeah a real big aspect is like all my friends were getting married. That's what you do when you're Mormon. You come home from your mission, you get married. That was the last thing I wanted to do. I wanted to date, love girls, but I didn't want to get tied down because whatever you know, I knew from the from. From a kid, I was never going to work for somebody. I'm going to always work for myself. I'm going to be self-employed. So if I'm going to take a risk, I might as well take it when I'm the only one to hang <laughs> and not, you know, not a wife and kids and, mm -hmm. you know, a mortgage and all that kind of stuff. 
And so, because I was like, what, 24, 25 at the time when I opened the store. So I'm going to open up another store. So I uh, started looking for another location. It ended up being Kennewick, Washington. Kennewick, Washington is 300 miles away. And I was like, what am I thinking? Because I looked high and low up towards Seattle and Portland and started heading east and found a location in Kennewick, Washington. Then I drove home and realized this is a long ways away, but I kind of committed myself to that to that stored location. And so I realized, well, I, a piece of the story I guess I missed was when I got home from my mission and when I was working at the funeral home, I got my pilot's license. There was an ad on, I always wanted to fly. My girlfriend's father flew, had a air, small airplane, never, let, never took me anywhere. But I thought it was cool because he'd fly back and forth to California in his in his uh, his Beechcraft Bonanza, and so I I uh, always thought that is what I want to do. That I you know I want to learn how to fly. So there was an ad on the radio, and and I went down and says I'll I want to learn how to fly. I don't know anything about it, but sign me up. <laughs> I didn't know a Cessna from a Piper to from a Mooney or any, nothing. Mm-hmm. And so six months later, I had a pilot's license. Yeah, but I can see why why you needed to tell that story, because I think that's going to make it so the 300 miles between Kennewick and Corvallis worked out. Well, that that was, that was <laughs> yeah, as I was going back, I'm like, well, maybe this isn't so bad. Maybe I need to buy an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> I got my pilot's license. I've been looking for, I mean, my first, I mean, I was looking for a reason to buy an airplane. And so anyway, I shopped around and found found one at the local field that was uh, half interest in a in a Cessna Cardinal, which is a, a retractable gear Cessna high wing airplane. And so I worked it out with the uh, with the current owner and and um, ended up buying his airplane and and used that for got a lot of my flying experience and going to the store or going to the store in Kennewick, but just all of a sudden I found lots of other places to go. You know, I'd go to Southern California, see some friends or, or, um, you know, just everywhere, Utah, there's always buddies at, you know, BYU or just, I just went everywhere in that plane, just had a great time. Got the second store open up in Kennewick. Didn't do quite as well as that first store did. It eventually prospered. And, but in the meantime, I was, I could see where I'm starting to lose control of my business because I have all these women working for me. And I don't know nearly as much about women as I thought I did. <laughs> and so there's all these uh, different, sh- you know, different moods and swings and this. Uh, just um, uh, anyway, it, uh, I went to a, the ward that I went to for church was University Ward. And they were having a scavenger hunt. And I was I think I was actually in charge of it. But that that was the night I met uh, my wife, Carol. She was a freshman there from Bend, Oregon, and excited about life and and uh, a spunky little gal. And that gal's pretty cute. She's, you know, see if she shows up to church on Sunday. Maybe I'll see if I can sit by her <laughs> or something like that. Because I don't know how active she was in at college, but she showed up to church and I was able to sit by her and asked her out on a date. Well, see if she wanted to come over, might come over after church and I'd make some spaghetti and then we'd go on a bike ride or something. And um, so we dated, you know, on and off. And she helped me build the Eugene store. She'd come down and help paint. And wallpaper was a big thing at that point in time. Anyway, 
we dated on and off. It was kind of rocky there for a while, but where she ended up going back to college at um, in Bend, COCC, and then she went to BYU, and then she came back to Oregon State. So we started dating again, and I was just not very – I didn't move very fast, but eventually I, I did ask her to marry me. And what I did is I was kind of unique is I, it snowed, which is kind of a rare thing in the Lamb Valley for it to stick. And there's about a foot of snow on the ground. So I went out to the airport in the middle of the night and shoveled on one of the taxiways, abandoned taxiways, because it used to be an old military base, so all kinds of taxiways, and shoveled, will you marry me, in somewhat shortened uh, as much as I could. And then I asked her if she wanted to go flying the next day and says, hey, I need to, I'm la- <clears throat> had my landing gear worked on. I want you to, you know, tell me, tell me if the landing gear is working right, which would get her to look out and down. And it took four times around the patch <laughs> before finally I says, you see anything else? No, no, everything, your landing gear's down. It's fine. It's fine. Is there still snow on the, on the ground down there? Then, you know, right over it and she saw, the, will you marry me? And so <laughs> she was she was beside herself, didn't know what to say, but she eventually said yes. I don't know if she said yes then or not. I have to ask her. I can't remember, but she might have wanted to wait till you landed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's see if you can land it this time. So yeah, we got uh and I'd already I'd already kind of told myself if I marry somebody, it's gonna have to be someone that can figure out these women and manage these women because I can't we can't continue building these stores and have this, you know, this many women and just not have a clue on how to manage them. And sure enough, she did. She was in college to be a physical therapist and she also ran track. So she did a little sports and cross country skiing. So after we got married, she kind of took the reins of the stores and she's, she's just, I mean, as you know, she's a really good manager. And she's a real hands-on manager. And so she eventually finished her college, but never really, never, never entered her field of, uh, of education because we just felt like our hair salons is where we're going to, is what we're going to be doing. So we did that for, gosh, the next 20 years from, started first one in 85 and 2005, we had an offer to sell her, our, and by that time we had built up to like 20 hair salons, I think around the Northwest, and she was getting tired of it. We had four kids, and being a mom and being involved in the kids' lives, managing all these stores, got to where she just, like, this is this just isn't any fun anymore. And so, and I, ironically, had kind of moved on because I kind of, like, they drove, you know, I, I was just, I'd shuttle people around if they needed to on the airplane, or go build a store, but even after a while, I we contracted all that out anyway. So, at any rate, um, we had an offer to 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 sell out to a company called Regis Corp, who basically is a national company, and they buy mom and pa chains, small chains. They actually had bought Supercuts. Supercuts was quite large. We we sold two thousand five. And we thought we'd built our dream home by then in, in Bend. By that point in time, we moved to Bend, which is Carol's hometown, on 20 acres and felt like this is a you know, great place to raise our kids and had a kind of little farm. 
we were just, you know, kind of loving life. But at the same time, we felt like our kids were still young. They're like junior high and whatnot. But we didn't want our kids thinking that mom and dad don't work. So we we took our money. We were invested. We'd always dabbled in real estate. And so we, you know, dabbled some more in real estate. We had a, we had a friend who, a um, guy I played basketball with that had a mortgage company. And so he he lured us into buying his mortgage company. <laughs> and this is like 2007 is about when I think when we bought it. And it wasn't really quite what it was. Uh, we were basically sold a bill of goods is what we how we felt about it. But at the end of the day, we didn't know that there was a recession or we'd start we'd started the real estate had started a recession and things were weren't going as well as we thought month after month, but they're gonna significantly start deteriorating in a big hurry. And by that time we had invested heavily pretty much all of our money into real estate, learned how to borrow. You know, we felt we were pretty conservative in our borrowing, but we'd stuck our neck out and uh, actually bought a big spec home from the bank because it was the builder had gone sideways. And we thought we're going to cut a fat hog with this thing. We're going to, you know, make a million dollars on the thing, just finish it out and sell it. Big luxury home. (laughs) In the end, by the time we got it finished, the, the market had tanked. And we kept dropping the price, dropping the price and anyway. And we, you know, and at the same time, our mortgage company, all of a sudden mortgages, no one needed a mortgage. And so that income dried up, you know, we had an office building that was making some money, but we were, we couldn't, we couldn't service the debt that we'd, we'd created for ourselves for very long. Actually, you know, it lasted a couple of years and pretty soon we were out of money. And then it was like, we're done. <laughs> we're going to have to think of something else to do boys and we had four boys the kind of the depths of it or whatever was when we got our foreclosure on our own on a ranch or dream home because we'd borrowed against it instead of paying off like we should have done we actually borrowed against it and carol decided i can't can't stay here anymore we have gotta move somewhere this is too hard and you know a lot of our friends we were all in the same boat we were kind of all going down this rapid that we couldn't we had no control over we had some friends commit suicide we had some friends go to prison because they were the government was looking for scapegoats and there was legitimate crooks in the whole industry that's for sure you can't foresee that stuff we bought a house in 2005 Mm -hmm. and we sold that house when we moved here in 2018 and we sold it for less than we paid for it in 2005 (laughs) so 13 years later it's still Still yeah. wasn't worth what I we paid for it in 2005. Yeah. And so, you know, we've bought high and sold yeah. low, and we've bought low and sold <laughs> high. And so I've been on both ends of that deal. Yeah, it's it. And yeah, we never, we'd always done really, really well in real estate. And we felt, as you probably did, you were, were you in Hawaii doing that? No, it was in Arizona. Oh, in Arizona. Well, still kind of the same. But, uh, but we bought a condo in Hawaii in 2002. And that thing went up, 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 up until like about 2006 and yeah. then started going down, 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 down. But we just wrote it out. We, Did you? Yeah. yeah. We, we kept it for 14 years and things kind of came back. But yeah. So I guess at that point, you, you guys needed a change. Yeah, we really did. In hindsight, we should have done things a few different, a little bit differently. We probably could have fought our way back and maintained some of our properties. But we basically had run all of our cash dry and we just didn't feel like there was anything anything left to do but 
um, but kind of get out of Dodge because we were, you know, like say our friends, we get together with friends and we're all you end up doing is crying in your beer about the same subject week after week. And, and so we had been to St. George, um, the year or two before really liked it, had the same size, kind of same feel, very touristy town, a lot of out outdoor activities, that kind of stuff. And so, and we're, yeah, we like, you know, we like the outdoors anyway. So we told the kids, Hey, we're going to have a big garage sale and take all our money and go to, we're moving to St. George. Thanks everyone for listening to part one of the Bob Hollowell interview. I guess you can tell that we stopped right when they're making the move to St. George, Utah. So tune in Friday for part two. Aloha. What's